Okay, guys, we are in week two of this new series. I really do want you to sign up for SDI because if you've caught anything and what we're trying, to, we're trying to go through is we have to reduce the space between us. It's really important, and I'm going to show you why in a second. We're, we're really examining the heart of Jesus' brother, James. Jesus, Jesus Mary had uh, uh, other children, and, and James was the brother of Jesus or the half-brother of Jesus. And James didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, and Jesus was your brother. You wouldn't be able to... You know what, guys? I don't want to ask for money from the people, but if you insist, come on. We're going to collect your tithes, your offerings, your connection cards before I'm canned from this position. Um, uh, and so, because this is, hold it, because this is serious, I don't want to, I don't want to run past it too quickly. Lord, you've given us so much, um, and you've only asked us for, to return what, we're, what we find joy in bringing. And so, Father, help us to love our stuff a little less and to love you a little more. In Jesus' name, amen. So James, this brother of Jesus, goes, what is it that causes fights and quarrels amongst you? And we're going to talk about that in the coming couple of weeks. But last week, we started... Um, we started trying to understand the value, why, why, why it would matter. Because a lot of us, if we're just honest, we like space between us, right? I mean, clearly those of you in the back don't like space between you because you jam in like crazy when there's plenty of room right up here. So the people, you, you are all enjoying plenty of space right here, right? You can spread out, take a little nap if you like, right? But the guys in the back, man, you'd, you'd be drooling on each other if somebody falls asleep because... There's not space. See, the scriptures call us to reduce the amount of space between us, and it needs to be a value for us. But why? See, here's the irony. Sunday morning at about this hour, it is likely, at least for those of us that, that say we're followers of Jesus, this is perhaps the hour where is the, there is the most space between followers of Jesus. Martin Luther King called it out on Meet the Press in 1960. I was watching this quote this week. He goes, I think it's one of the most shameful tragedies of our, our nation that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in Christian America. Any church that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and teaching of Jesus Christ and fails to be a witness. And he's 100% right about that. And then he goes on to say that, you know, he's a pastor. He, he goes on to say that even in his own church, while not a segregating church, it was a segregated church his own church. Why? Because we like some space between us and them. And it's not just a black and white thing. It's, it's a rich and poor thing. It's a liberal and conservative thing. It's a Republican and Democrat thing. It's a blue-collar, white-collar thing. It's a charismatics versus cessationalist thing. It's evangelicals versus mainline thing. It's Catholics versus Protestant things. And on and on we go. We like a little space between us. But light of, in light of Jesus' last prayer, this is less than an effective way for followers of his to live. Here's, as, as all of Holy Week was kind of commencing and all of it was about to unravel on Jesus, he, he, he starts to pray. And here's what he prayed. He said, after praying for the disciples that he was walking with, he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is literally you. I pray for them. 
literally like D. I, I pray for D Brewer that one day, because this is so important, right? This, a lot of times we claim promises that were made to Israel and put them over ourselves. No, no, no. This is literally Jesus playing for you. And he says, I pray that all of them might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And, and again, understand that God exists in the ultimate state of unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each of which who has a different, a different um, role in the Godhead, a different purpose in the Godhead, but yet one. May they be in us so that, and here comes the reason, reason number one I gave you last week, why unity is important, why we should care about the space between us. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he doubles down on it. He goes, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know. Well, the world will know what? Well, the world will know that uh, when the church gets things right and when they're one, they'll know that the Lutherans were right on sanctification. No. Well, then the world will know that we should be dedicating babies and not baptizing them. No, that's not what he says. Well, then they'll know that, you know, the liberals were crazy or the conservatives were cold. No, that's not it. Well, then they'll know that my position was right. I was right, we were right, and they were wrong. If we, if we could just be unified in that, then we could teach them who's right and who's wrong. No, that's not it. Then the world will know that you sent me, reason number one. And here comes reason number two. And you've loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is saying, Lord, I, I, my prayer is that these guys would be as close as you and I are, even though, Father, that you and I are different, we have different roles in the Godhead, they're different, they have different roles within the church, but my prayer is that they would be one, because if they're one, if the church is one, here's two things, I'm going to give you three, but here's two things that'll happen. The first is people will know I am who I said I am. If they're one, people will begin to understand that I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. And they'll understand that God loves them. See, if they would get together, then people might understand that God is not some far-off, aloof, big disciplinary God with a stick just waiting for us to screw up. If they would be one, then the world would start to understand that God actually loves people. Now, I want you to understand, that's what's at stake in this series. This is really important, and this is why at the zero hour, Jesus is praying for you about this. This is his final prayer for you. And so as believers, it doesn't do us a lot of good to bemoan, what, bemoan what's happening outside of the walls of our churches. Oh, this culture is so lost. They don't know God. To which I would say, it's not lost because they dropped the ball. We did. So last week, I, I gave you those two reasons. Then I gave you a third very personal reason why being one, acting, acting in unison, 
why we're, why we're reducing the space between us is really important for you personally. And, and I want to give it to you because Paul wrote it to the church in Corinth. In chapter 12, a pretty famous writing, Paul says to that church, now you are the body of Christ. You are, not individually, but each one of you is a part of it. And when you're together, you represent, because Jesus is bodily absent from this earth, you are part of, in some way, the physical manifestation of the body of Jesus on earth. When the church is together in unison and close, that is as close as a normal human being is going to be able to get to the physical being of Jesus. And you and I were created to play a role and a part in that. This means your calling. I just, I just wish I knew what I was created for. I just wish I knew of what God's purpose is for me. I wish I just knew what God wanted me to do. All of that stuff is found within the body of Christ. Not trying to live autonomously. Remember Paul last week, he was giving all the examples about the eye and the ear and the foot. And it is interesting to me how when, I, when anybody talked to me about last week's lesson, all they were concerned about was how I denigrated ladies and men's feet. So, and yet I saw a guy walking through church this morning with, bare, with sandals on. So nobody listens. Anyway. <laughs> but, but this concept, right, of an eyeball is a wonderful thing when it's attached to the body. Pop it out and it's not that attractive. Pretty beautiful in, pretty ugly out. Functioning well in, not functioning well out. Growing with the body in, withering and dying out. This is where we find our beauty and our calling and our purpose within the body. We are the body of Christ. And so that's where I want to jump back in today, back to this church in Corinth. It's really interesting because the church of Corinth is, is really quite different than any of the other churches that Paul writes to. So let me just start with this. Some of you know and some of you don't. Who is Paul? Paul writes probably half of the New Testament, and he shows up in the Bible soon after the birth of, of Jesus' ecclesia. That word gets translated church, but it never really meant church. It meant movement. Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my movement, and I'm giving you this challenge. Go and make disciples of mine, followers of mine. Well, Paul, he was at the time a Pharisee. In fact, he, he was such a Pharisee, he one time refers to himself as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, because the Pharisee nature runs deep. What was a Pharisee? A Pharisee, the name simply meant separated ones. So Pharisees were this kind of religious elitist class in Jesus' day. They separated themselves from society in order to study and teach the law, but also because they thought the common people, people like you and I, right, we were considered religiously unclean, so they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even be near us. They preferred a lot of space between us and them. And at the core of Pharisaic thought was that the way we related to God and impressed God and kept God off our back was by keeping the law. Pharisees were professional law keepers, which is why if you know any of the stories of Jesus, he's always butting heads with the Pharisees because Jesus and law didn't mix together other than the fact that he said, I've completed all of the laws for you. So Paul comes on the scene to crush, is this passionate kind of guy, to crush this fledgling movement of Jesus followers. 
Some of you know he was present at the first martyring of a Christian. Yet it was Paul who, when he met the resurrected Jesus and came to embrace this gospel of grace and forgiveness and truth, not only did he become, begin to embrace it, he became its greatest advocate and messenger traveling all over the, the, uh, the world. You know, the book we call 1 Corinthians, that wasn't the first letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Nobody knows where that letter is. It's been lost. But Paul references that he sent them an earlier letter. So sometime in the fall of 50 CE, common era, he, he sent that. But apparently the Corinthians didn't like that letter. So they wrote him one back. We don't have that one either. But what we do have is Paul's first kind of return to them, uh, his answer to their letter. It's probably in the spring of 51. He writes back. Let me, let, and, and it's in here we understand this community. This is really interesting. It's a really interesting church community. I want you to think, it could, have you ever heard of a church community that would be anything like this? He addresses at least 15 issues that the church is fighting about. Let me go through it with you. The first is they were fighting over who was in charge, who should be the leader, right? Who, there was rivalries within the church. Okay. Then they were fighting about incest, believe it or not, within, within, with church members. There was a guy that had married his father's wife. That's in the Bible. This is why you should read your Bibles. You'd be shocked at some of the stuff that you're going to find in there. Then they were arguing about prostitution. Then they were arguing about people that were trying to maintain celibacy within a marriage and the frustration that was causing within marriages. Then Paul uh, was asked to, to deal with Christians that were married to one another, asking about divorce. Then he weighed in on Christians married to non-believers that were asking about divorce. Then he weighed in on questions surrounding marriage and remarriage. Then he talked to them about lawsuits and idolatry and concerns about women's role in the church, concerns about what a church service should look like, how should a church service run. Then he had to talk about communion. How do you run a communion service within the church? Then he had to deal with a theological argument about Jesus. Then he had to talk to them about the use of money and giving within the church. And finally, when it was all said and done, he had to deal with them being mad at him because he had changed his travel plans. What a mess. Yet, if we're honest, there's something eerily familiar about many of these arguments. It's a lot of issues, but if I was going to kind of summarize what I think is going on in this church in Corinth, it's what I think happens in a lot of religious gatherings. I want you to stick with me now, because a lot of times what happens in church is you and I come into the church, and we drag behind us all of our baggage, all of the things our mommies and daddies taught us, all of the things our first, th first three churches we attended to, all my, my pastor when I was a kid. We bring that in, all the things I believe. And then we bring kind of our carnality in, our flesh, right, our desires to be the best, the brightest, the smartest. And we've got all these other broken sin issues. And then we get in the church and we kind of mix them a little bit. Right, like I need a little bit of law, and I, I, I and but I'm not going to really change that much. There's kind of a a thing where we're in church. It's like, all right, I, I'm here now because I think that you can get me into heaven. These messages. What are the rules that I have to keep to get to heaven? I'm going to go there, and they'll help me figure out what those rules are. Right? Uh, what do I got to do to keep God happy? What do I got to do to get my best life now? What do I got to do to get God to give me that promotion? Right? It all kind of, and that's just kind of mingled with our own flesh and carnality. And that's what the church often just becomes, right? The problem is, when that happens, nobody's changing. 
There's no life change. It's just people starting to argue over communion and, well, I was here first and I'm not going to move in. I know they want me to move in, but if I move in, I got here early for an aisle seat. It's toxic mixture, mixture starts. You see it. Paul addresses it in Corinthians. It is, people are dividing up over leaders. Some people are like, well, I like Paul. Paul came here, and I heard him, and I was the first one to, to listen to Paul, so I think we should follow Paul. And then it was another guy, Apollos. Apollos was apparently this great orator and was highly educated. So then there was a lot of people in the church who was going, oh, Paul's an idiot. Don't listen to him. Follow Apollos. Apollos is much brighter. Did you see where he went to school? Have you heard Apollos speak? And then other people were like, yeah, but Apollos, he doesn't know, he doesn't know Jesus. Peter knew Jesus. I think we should follow Peter. You think you should follow Peter? Well, if you think you should follow Peter, I can't hang out with you. Hey, I'm going to have to start my own Apollos church. Well, fine, I'll start a Peter church. And you start to see it right away, right? Well, I can't be wrong about Peter, right? And so I'm out of here. You see, when it comes to their communion time, this mix of like carnality in my flesh with religious stuff, See, when the early church met for communion, they, they usually did so in the midst of kind of like a, a shared meal. It was like a first century potluck, okay? Now, in the church at Corinth, Corinth was a, a, a big metropolitan city, and there was a, a lot of wealth concentrated within a few people, which might sound familiar too. It, it would seem that, that, guess who got to get to the potluck early? The rich people. And then they came, and they got their seats early, and they got their meal early, and they got their communion wine early, and they really enjoyed that communion wine. And so guess what happened when the poor people came into the church? Well, the communion food was gone, and everybody was bombed. It's a true story. Go read this. This Paul's addressing this because everybody's getting bombed at the communion meal, and the widows and the orphans are coming in, and there's nothing there. And he's trying to, he's like, Wait, what are you doing? You're claiming to be followers of Jesus, but you haven't changed anything. You're just going through religious stuff. You're still oppressing the poor and the weak and the marginalized, and you're still getting bombed, but you're doing it in communion. Somehow that resonates like good to you. Another thing that was at the core of the problem in this church in Corinth, see if this sounds familiar, it was a very diverse church. Paul was, in a sense, he, he was a victim of his own success. When Paul, on his missionary journey there, started the church about 10 years prior to writing this letter, he and a, a couple of women named Priscilla and Aquila had worked with Paul to convert people in this hand-worker um, hand community and probably in the streets outside of the factory shops in which they labored. And so these converts, these are not good Jewish boys. Like, these are out-and-out -out pagans. They're tough, they're poor, they're uncouth people, Right? In the synagogue in Corinth, however, Paul was also more successful than he was in other areas when he went to preach in the synagogue. Usually when he went, went to preach in synagogues, they chased him out of town. But in Corinth, Paul was able to win over a lot of the temple leaders to be followers of Jesus. He converted a wealthy God worshiper named um, Justice, a Jewish synagogue patron named Crispus. And so now this church, this kind of mixture, is going, and it's going on for about 10 years. Converts and God-worshippers in the Corinthian search. Uh, some of the Jews still very much attached to the law. Some of, some of the Gentiles and the pagans very much still attached to their carnality. Equally important, some of these folks are very wealthy. Some of them are very poor. 
and all hell breaks loose. And then Paul writes this line to them. After going through all of the issues and talking about all their stuff, he goes, you know, you're the body of Christ together. And each of you has an indispensable role in this, all of you. And if you keep chasing each other out of the church and you keep disagreeing over everything, and if you can't get along with one another, this body is never going to function. You're the body of Christ. So he writes the letter. He goes, listen, I'm appealing you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, that all of you would just agree with one another in what you say and that there'd be no divisions among you, that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought and, and so he goes through all of these issues, and then in chapter 12, he, he brings up that concept of the body of Christ, right? How each of you have your place in this, and the body's not going to function unless all of you begin to function as one and reduce the space between you. Now, this is all great theology. Yes, we have to get along. But you know who he voted for? Right? I mean, it's all, it's all good practically, but, but how do you do this? Yeah, I mean, do you know what he thinks about, do you know, do you know where I saw, I saw, you know, I saw Jim the other night, you know where I saw him? Do you know what this guy thinks about this principle or that doctrine? You know that guy over there, you know what he thinks a woman can do in church? And so, how do you do it? If this is so important, how do you do it, Practically. Well, Paul kind of teases it out right at the end of chapter 12, right when he gets done telling them how indispensable they are to one another. Now, listen, I just got to pause. This makes no sense unless you really believe that. We are indispensable to one another. That means people that look different than you, think different than you, they have a role to play here. Unless we can figure out a way to do it together, three things are suffering, right? People will never know who Jesus is. People will never know God loves them. And you'll never find your place in this world because this body will break down. So you've got to start to believe I'm called to reduce the space between me and people who don't think like me. So Paul ends chapter 12. He goes, and yet, given all these things, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. In other words, there's a different way than the way you've currently existed, fighting over doctrine and carnality and all the other things. He says it's, Jesus said it a, a, a little bit differently. He said, choose the narrow path, not the wide path. Choose a different way. Paul knows from his time with the resurrected Jesus that Jesus did not call him to be a messenger of the law, of getting things right, of doing it right, of being a good boy. Paul was called to be a messenger of the gospel of Jesus. And gospel, the, Jesus' gospel has at its very core not all of the commands that the Pharisees had, not the theological issues that the church at Corinth was fighting over. These things don't change people. Religious law and duty, as we've looked at, it either elevates people over another or denigrates people below one another. Jesus doesn't come to, to just kind of start a new kind of a new kind of Judaism with new rules and regulations. He comes to start something new. He said that he had in his life and death fulfilled all of the laws the Pharisees were holding over everybody. So I understand when we're waving our finger at everybody within the church, please understand that Jesus already paid the price for their sin. Right? They're already square with God through faith. 
Those laws and commands have been taken care of, but there is a new one. There is a new command, a new way. In fact, Jesus put it this way, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in and, and, and something that sounds kind of eerily familiar to his last prayer, he goes, by this, by the way you love one another, everyone will know if you're my disciple, if you love one another. You know, it was the Pharisees who tried to trick Jesus up all the time because the Pharisees loved the law, right? And so Paul was likely in on a plot one time to try to trick Jesus up because Paul was a Pharisee, to try to trick Jesus up on the law. And so one of them one t- time came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you know, What's the greatest law? Here's how Jesus responded. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now think about what he says here. All of the law and the prophets, which is what they call the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. That means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. That means circumcision, the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. They all hang on this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul knew Jesus. And so Paul starts writing crazy things like this. For the entire law is filled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbors as yourself. He would go on to say, for in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Just to tell you, the church in Galatia was arguing over who could follow Jesus, if you had to be circumcised or if you didn't have to be circumcised because the Jewish people love the law. And if you want to be a follower of God, you got to get circumcised. And, you know, the Gentile guys are coming in going, I'm not so sure about this, right? And so Paul's going, what are you doing? What are you He goes, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so think about him writing to this church in Corinth that is fighting about issue after issue after issue. Separate, 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 separate. Paul goes, let me show you a different way to do this. And then he writes these words. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding, resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all of the mysteries and I have all of the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have any love, I'm nothing. If I, give, if I give all I possess, think about what Paul's saying. If I give everything I have, if I give away all of my money, if I give away everything, my house, my cars, if I give it all away, And then I give my body over. I got nothing left, so I'm going to give my body over to hardship so that I can boast, but I don't have love. I gain nothing. How many of you have heard those verses before? Raise your hand. Where do we all hear them? This has nothing to do with a wedding. This is written to a bunch of people at a church ticked off at each other because the rich and the poor were fighting and the liberals and the Democrats were fighting and the conservatives and the evangelicals and the, the, you know, the... And Paul starts to go, listen, you don't understand, like, you could get all of your theology right, but it won't matter. 
He says there's only one way to overcome all of the stuff you're fighting over, the carnality, the re religiosity. It's the same way you'll know you're a, the people will know you're a follower of Jesus. It's the same way people will know who Jesus is. It's the same way people will know that God loves them. You've got to love one another because if you get your theology right and you get your works right and your teaching is on point and you're willing to suffer and sacrifice and give all of your stuff away, you know what you gain? Nothing. It's meaningless. Meaningless. It has no value. Then... He explains what love is. I remember this morning as I was preaching this, isn't there like an 80s song? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. That's what I'm here for, kids. I'm going to show you what love is. My wife is rolling her eyes right now. And love does not mean we're all on the same side of every issue. Okay, that's not love. That's just like, yeah, you're my boy right? That's not what love is. Love is a choice usually regarding people that don't think, look, or act like we want them to. Here's how Paul described it, if you want to know what it is. He said, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Understand, to a church splitting up over everything, theological issues, you know, life issues, political issues, leadership issues, Paul goes, you know, there's a better way. In fact, it's the most excellent way. It's the narrow path. Here's what it looks, like. it looks like. I made a little chart for you, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I put a lot under proud. I put three things under proud. Actually, Paul talks more about what love isn't than what love is. But I just want to camp out on this this morning because this is the excellent way. How do we reduce the space between us? Well, you got to love. Well, what's love? That's it. That's what love looks like. So here's the little game we're going to play. Because again, you can know all this, right? You can have all of the knowledge of what love is. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. I want you to think of two people. I want you to A, to think about your spouse or the person like that, you, that you're close to. Or, you know, so if you don't have a spouse, think about like maybe somebody you're dating or, or somebody in your family, okay? A familial kind of person. You got that person? Put that person in your mind. Now I want you to think about somebody that you can't stand, okay? Like, you just can't stand. So some of you are, I'm coming to mind, I'm thinking. <laughs> some of you just can't stand right on. Oh, that guy is so annoying. Okay, you know the guy on Facebook that you blocked? That guy. That's who I want you to think of. And now, let's talk about love. There's going to be a song in there somewhere. Love is patient. By the way, Jesus said to love our enemies, our enemies. We are about to see uh, our political infrastructure blow sky high starting this week. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if we could learn how to do this? Love is patient. Are you patient? Have you been patient? I was uh, 
You know, I'm thinking about putting this one on my car because I'm the most impatient driver. I'm just the worst driver. I know I tell a lot of driving stories, but it's just where God convicts me of my sinfulness on a regular basis. And so the other day I was waiting in line to get out of a store and I had to make a left, which meant I had to cut across traffic and all these people were coming right. And these people just were not kind, <laughs> right? And so what am I gonna do? Eventually, I have to come out because I'm less than patient. And so randomly I decided who I would enforce my lack of patience on. And that person was specifically less than kind. In fact, he pulled up alongside of me and let me know what he thought of that act. And I'm going, you know, you're a pastor. And so I'm, I'm going, I'm not going to look at him, which I think made him even less kind. Um, and so this whole thing, now if I had like, like and I'm feeling my flesh going, right, because I got a couple of uh, these other things, pride and all the rest in there. And so, so I'm feeling my flesh get going on this and I'm going, I just want to turn, look over at you and ask you to get out of the car, right? But I'm going, this is not going to look good in, in the patch tomorrow on Facebook. So I'm not going to look at you. But then I realized, you know what started this whole thing? It was because there was a guy behind me in the parking lot that wanted to get out. He was impatient with me. I only tell you this because this is, do you realize the depth of lack of, what lack of patience with one another does to us? I was almost in a fist fight in the middle of Route 57. And I'm a pastor. And not all that big. <laughs> this is what lack of patience does. Are you patient? Or does it have to be now? Do people have to think the way you think now? Do they have to stop what they're doing right now? Do they have to meet your expectations right now? Would somebody ever say of you, oh man, that Aaron Fessler, that guy's the most patient guy I ever met. He'll wait forever for you to get it right. Right? Oh, John, oh, his patience just goes on and on. I was honking at him in the, in the store the other day. He didn't move. I mean, keep going because love is kind. It's kind. Are you a kind person? I don't, mean to, I don't mean being reciprocally kind. I don't mean being kind to a child. I don't mean being kind to an old lady on the corner. I mean just being kind to somebody that doesn't think like you. Is your life characterized by kindness? See, I kind of feel like this is where Paul goes, let me show you what this isn't. You know, he goes, it's not kind to be envious. It's not kind to be jealous all the time. Every time somebody gets something better than you, you got to be jealous. Every time somebody gets ahead, every time somebody buys a nicer car, gets a bigger house, gets the corner office, every time you're going to be jealous? Because that's not love. Like, that's just not love. That guy that you're thinking of in your head that you can't stand, is some of it because he's doing a little better than you are? Because that's not love. It's not kind to be jealous all the time, to always want what somebody else has. You know what Paul says? It's not really kind. It's not loving to boast. Do you realize we would put Instagram out of business if we realized we don't need to boast? I mean, that's all we do, right? You don't want me to boast? Well, who's going to know what my kid did? Who's going to know what I ate for dinner, how good a cook I was tonight? Who's going to know I took my wife on date night unless I tell you? <laughs> right? You know, love doesn't need to boast. Paul goes on. You know, it doesn't dishonor others. Do you know how we dishonor others? We talk about them behind their back. I don't know what it is, but we love to talk about each other behind our backs. Gossip, right? Oh, you can just feel something good when it first comes up. Ooh, I didn't know that, but 
thank you for letting me know because now I feel better about myself. Right? Love doesn't dishonor other people. Think about that guy in your head, right? Wouldn't you just go love to go tell some people some stuff on them? Think about what you said about your spouse to some friends one night. Love doesn't gossip. Love doesn't tear down. It's not self-seeking. It's others-focused. Do you want to know why most marriages wind up in the trash can? Because when we got married, we always got sold a bill of goods. I'm marrying you because you are everything I've been looking for in a spouse. Well, that's me-focused. You are everything I'm looking for. Love is like, I don't really care. I'm just going to love you. Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow, I'm going to love you pick. I'm going to love you. Starts to become real, right? You're welcome here. Not only are you welcome here, you're needed here. It's not easily angered. You have a short temper, gentlemen. Point out, can I, can I take the liberty of pointing to my brothers in the faith? Many of you have a short temper. I don't know why guys are so angry. I don't know why that guy that pulled up next to me was so a very angry young man. And then a lot of times I'll talk to guys and I'll be like, dude, you got a short temper. Well, that's just who I am. Really? Because it's not loving. Yeah, I know, but, you know, she's just going to have to deal with Really? Well, she shouldn't have married me. What? Love, I mean, you're called to love. You're called, you're called, to, have a, you're called to be patient. The Lord is patient and long-suffering and kind and compassionate. The Scriptures say over and over, God is slow to anger. You're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Would everybody around town go, all oh, those people up, man, them, Paul, they're so kind and patient. Oh, gosh, you don't believe like they believe. It doesn't matter. They love you anyway. Are you slow to anger? It keeps no records of wrongs. Ladies? See, here's what I know about guys. I have literally seen men punch each other in the face and 15 minutes later be making up over a beer. Ladies? I mean, sometimes, right, it's just like letting go of an offense isn't easy. I mean, how about a second chance, like a clean slate? Here, think about this. God has removed from you your sins as far as removed as the east is from the west. Your debt has been paid and wiped clean. Could you do that for anyone? How about your spouse? How about that guy in your head that you run everything through, the filter, filter, filter? Could you let it go? Could you not run, let everything that he does run through the filters of the past? Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. You know what this one means? This one means you don't feel good when they get theirs. Oh, don't you love it when they get theirs? I love it. You ever posted about karma online? I love karma. As long as I'm not getting mine, right? I love it. Because that's what Paul goes, that's not love. You don't delight in evil coming on somebody else. Oh, man, I'm so glad that happened to you. May I remind you, sons and daughters of the high, the most high God, because of what Jesus did for you, because of how he loves you, Jesus got what you deserved. 
You didn't get, you're not going to get what you deserve. Why do you keep demanding somebody else get what they deserve? That's not love. You know, love's not seasonal or sporadic. Love is always for things. Paul says it always protects. It doesn't take advantage of situations. It doesn't malign people. It always sticks up for people, even if they don't agree. Love always trusts. Not just when they've proven themselves to be trustworthy. Why would I trust him? Because I've seen him do it before. Really? Because God has entrusted his church with being the body of Christ, with the message of the gospel. And if we're honest, we've been a little less than trustworthy. But love always trusts. And this one, I just love this one. It's so important to me. Love always hopes. People give up on people all the time. All the time. I'm done with them. Love hopes. Love doesn't give up on. Love doesn't give up on marriages and sons and daughters and relationships. Love believes there's still a chance. Love believes there's a better day to come. Love believes that reconciliation is still a possibility. Jesus, just like the prodigal's father, waits for every lost son and daughter to come home. Jesus holds out hope for everyone. As the band comes up, finally there's this, love perseveres. Let me explain something. Love doesn't quit. Love doesn't quit. It doesn't go, well, I tried. Love will go through hell and back for its recipient. Jesus did that for you. Love, it suffers long. Love is willing to be hurt. Love does not need to be reciprocated. That's not love. Love never ends. And so with that in mind and those people in your mind, here's my question for you this morning. I want you to think about it all week. Have you ever truly loved anybody? Ever. Have you ever truly loved anybody? Because we're going to fix this. This is the way. It's the more excellent way. Because where there's prophecies on the kingdom of God, we're not going to need any prophecies. We'll be there. They're going to stop. Where there's tongues and, and miracles, I'm not going to need them in the kingdom of heaven. They'll, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, I mean, I'm going I'm to see Christ face to face. That'll pass away. Love's the only thing that moves on into the next life. It's the only thing that remains. I have to tell you, my wife and I started working on this a bunch of years ago. I run, I try to run most of what I do through these things. I think about it all the time. I read this scripture more than I've read any scripture over the last 10 years. I've read this scripture over and over and over and over. And I try to make, take every thought captive and go, is what I'm about to say going to communicate love? Or is it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm just, hey, I didn't mean it. That's not love. There's a lot at risk. 
There's a lot at risk. I mean, how are people going to know Jesus is who he said he is? How are people going to know that God loves them? How are, they, how are you going to find your calling and your place? There's only one way to decrease the space between us. Will you choose to love?